Good evening. It is Tuesday night in New York City, a little after midnight. You're listening to 99.5 FM, as I said, here in New York City. This is WBAI, part of the Pacifica Radio Network. My name is Anne-Marie Hendrickson, and the name of this show is A Mansion for the Rat. And I'm happy to be with you, and uh, not happy, but uh, eager to tell you that we're in fun drive mode. We're in summer fun drive. That's the first thing I'm going to deal with before I deal with anything else. As you know, uh, BAI comes to you without commercial um, support. Our support comes through listeners like you. And uh, so we, as a certain time of, of every uh, few months, too often, I suppose, we do ask for money because although the bulk of the programming on the station is done by people like myself who are unpaid, but happily and proudly uh, do it through the pleasure of getting to talk to you. And, you know, it's an honor. It's an honor to be do. It was an honor to be asked to do this, frankly. Not everybody does, and I'm I'm happy to do it. It's often um, I find it challenging, <laughs> um, but um, I I accept that it's an honor, and um, but just to keep the station in the air costs money. Just you know, just the basic physical aspects of it. You know, the transmitter rents, the electricity, everything. So uh, we do we do us that you help us defray the costs, and you can do that by going to wbai.org and clicking on the fund drive box on the front page and just following the directions from there. And you can give a donation, however small or however large, sky's the limit that you like. Um, if it is over a certain amount, we will give you a gift in return for your gift to us. There's a long list of premiums on the website. You can choose one. Hope you do. But even more, I I hope I hope you do give money. But even the best kind of giving I hope you would do is I hope you become a buddy of the station. Become a buddy of a mansion for the rat. Become a buddy of this show. You go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 and agree to give a certain amount of money to the station every month, number your amount of money you feel comfortable with, and uh, it will just be deducted from your bank account every month. You don't have to think about it, and uh, we don't have to think about it either because we just get the money, and so rather than having to like stagger from begathon to begathon hoping for cash, we know that we have a certain amount of it coming in every month, and you know it too, and you can feel very smug when you listen to these uh, pitches because you say, well... That's not me. I gave. I'm giving. I continue to give. I'm keeping the station on the air. Don't you want to feel smug like that? Of course you do. So you should become a buddy. Become a buddy of the Mansion for the Rat. And call 516-620-3602 or go to WBAI.org and agree to support us like we keep supporting you. This isn't the last you're going to be hearing of this, but I felt I have to get that out of the way to begin with, in your heart, you know I'm right. Um, tonight, I'm going to be oh, kind of thinking out loud on the air, as I often do, just sort of um, roiling just different ideas around in my head based on some stuff that uh, has happened recently and, you know, on my reading and other stuff. 
Um, one of the big events today, I guess, was that um, the man who presents himself to the world as being our president has been meeting with foreign leaders um, and acting a bit of a fool, as he does. Frankly, I think that's one of the things that his supporters like about him. You know, it has a sort of a Beverly Hillbillies quality to it. Um, and after meeting with Vladimir Putin yesterday, he has come out and kind of, re, you know, kind of recanted from some of his earlier statements about the whole controversy with Russian interference in the American elections in 2016, um, which he previously had said he kind of thought was BS and uh, was very down on the U.S. intelligence services that claimed it was the case. And now, wow, he thinks the CIA and and family are all just, they're just the bestest. So um, this is all a little odd. And, you know, he just he seems to say the first things that come into his head. So who knows what's really going on with this. But it's sort of interesting. And it's um, because it's been so debated over the past the past year or so. And uh if you listen have listened to me at all over the past couple of years, you know that um I'm that one person in America who doesn't think the Russian uh Twitter onslaught was really that responsible for the election results in November two thousand sixteen. I just don't. I I didn't think it then and I don't think it now. I don't doubt at all that they were involved in doing it. That I don't have a problem believing that. Um, because I just don't. I mean, spycraft goes back a long way, and of course spies, you know, spy, that's what spies do. Spies all, you know, try to interfere with each other's, you know, with these other's activities. They try to gather information, and they try to kind of, you know, sabotage normal, normal functioning of the people, of the organization or the government that they don't like. So, what, you know, it's not surprising. The Americans certainly have a long history of it, don't they? So, why, why wouldn't the Russians? And, um, I mean, of course, the Russians have over time. I read the about the Venona project, the Venona secrets, and everything. Of course, I mean, of course, there were, of course, there have been Russian operatives here for a long, long time doing various things. What I don't believe is that um, anything the Russians did could possibly be more disruptive than what the American press did during this period. I just, I've said that. I said it then. I, you know. I said it a year and a half ago, and I'm still saying it now. I, how could they be worse than CNN? I mean, it's funny that Trump doesn't like CNN, but I think because I think CNN was like I mean, for one thing, had some you know had a, at least one guy who was on his staff like as an ostensible uh, objective news analyst for you know months and months and months of the campaign. And the, the the kind of the crisis point of the campaign over the summer and into the early fall, what was his name? Um, Corey Lewandowski. Corey Lewandowski. He was here for months. And he was, he was you know, he wasn't just a Trump supporter. He was on the Trump payroll. And there he was on CNN every night just, you know, acting as though, you know, he were just a journalist. And that's CNN. How could, how could the Russians have done anything worse than that? And... Um, I mean, this in general, this this whole um, thing has been pushed. 
in Congress and in the press by supporters of Hillary Clinton, who still refused to acknowledge that she was a crummy candidate who did not have the support of the people, didn't have the support of her own party, really. I mean, Sanders was killing her in every primary, despite of their feeling that, like, he was a, a crazy man who was going to bring socialism to America. I, I wish, if only that had happened. I mean, that's, I, people would have, people, clearly that's something people would have gone for. And the people in the Republican Party, you know, who, you know, were just embarrassed that they got this chump, you know, who can't even speak English is now, you know, was their candidate and ended up being the president because they couldn't apparently find a human being to run against him. So there's a certain weird overlap between those two groups who would like to think that anybody but themselves is responsible for what happened. Um, but to to go back to it, um, I just think the what is the effect of a media campaign is one of the hardest things to determine about it, and I think that that's just historically that is true. I mean, the the whole idea of Amazon and Google and all these different, you know, big uh, media companies trying to monitor what we do digitally all the time and having Alexa, you know, in series spying on our conversations and everything else is an attempt to do just that, to figure out exactly when you hear a commercial or where you, when you see the name of a product, what do you think about it? What do you do? What is your decision making based on this? Because it's really hard to do that. Advertisers have wanted to do this. That's what they want to know. Every artist wants to know when they write a book, they want to know what you thought of it, you know, and uh, you, you sing a song, you know, you sing in the theater and people applaud, but did they really love it? Maybe they're just being polite. You don't know what the audience actually thought of the, you know, the performance that you put out there. And so we, we kind of, I mean, we know basically what the the kind of stuff that the Russian government put out into the Twitterverse that they sort of set up these dummy accounts that appear to be, oh, small regional news organizations of various kinds that just sort of basically reprinted stuff off the um, AP wire for, you know, a year to sort of look normal. And then during the campaign started coming up with this crazy stuff about Hillary Clinton running a sex trafficking ring out of a pizzeria basement and all the other crazy stuff that they did. And that is crazy. And I'm, you know, and also, you know, having all these sock puppets going forward and saying sexist things about her, not that there weren't plenty of people to say sexist things anyway, because uh, if there's one thing that has turned out, you know, to, well, to be something at least that people are talking about again over the past year, it's that uh, there's, uh, we haven't licked sexism in this country, have we? As the Me Too movement has shown us. There's certainly a lot, lot going on there. And, the, you know, I don't like Hillary Clinton. I don't like her policies. But I don't like that she was attacked in a sexist way, and I don't do that. I would not um, I would not ever deny that there was an element of sexism in the hostility toward her. But um, that's not why I didn't like her. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't like her. I don't like what she believes in. I don't like what she, what she has done when she has been in power. I saw no reason to make her the president. But, and this is the big thing. I mean, we, she won anyway. I mean, she she actually won numerically in the general election. She didn't, he, you know, Trump didn't even beat her. She didn't beat him by much, which is, as I said, ridiculous, given who he and who and what he is, that she would have that hard a time with it, that she didn't just wipe the floor with him, as she expected. 
And it's a mark of, you know, how unpopular she really was for various reasons that that happened. But one of the interesting things is whatever Russia was or wasn't doing in the election, the voter turnout in this country is really small and has been for a long time. It's been getting lower. The um, It hasn't been over 60% since, in, in 50 years. I think the 68 election was the last time it got up to over 60%. 2008, when Barack Obama ran for the first time, it approached that, but it didn't reach it, in fact. And... I mean, it's hovered around 50%, a little above, a little below, depending on who you believe. I think it's below. I mean, I'm actually being conservative in this and just saying 50% just to not be a, a jerk. But I think it's actually lower than that. And and as I said, it has been for a long time. Francis, you know, Fox Piven pointed out a long time ago why Americans don't vote. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with that. So the idea that... Um, you know, people who can't get off their phone and can't get off social media are somehow being directed to do something other than what they otherwise would have done. I I just can't believe that that's a major, major, that that was a major force in the campaign. I just can't. I can't believe this. And in terms of how things worked out, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, Trump is a nut compared to Clinton, but, you know, she's no, she's no prize anyway. I mean, I mean, Bill Clinton abolished, you know, abolished welfare, as it previously had existed, and established workfare. Um, Barack Obama deported more people from the United States than George W. Bush did. Um, oh, I don't, you know, he didn't shut down. He didn't. He didn't, uh, you know, abolish Guantanamo. I mean, I could go on and on. You know, you listen to WBAI. I mean, you can listen to the same shows I'm listening to. to in, become informed. You know, I'm not trying to claim that Trump's not, a, you know. I don't even know that he's a fascist. He's a narcissist. He's a narcissist who does the first thing comes into his head, and he's a, he's a jerk, you know. He's a jerk before he has any kind of central politics. In a way, that's why, you know, I don't know if he's really a fascist, although he's somebody the fascists could have, you know, have been making good use of. And... I mean, the fact that he sort of, you know, seems to not be able to, he's struggling with reading and writing in English, you know, and he seems like, you know, kind of a churl. You know, it embarrasses, it embarrasses and upsets the people of the New York Times, and I think it, you know, for his his fan base, because of course he does have a fan base, that's probably what they like best about him, you know. He's a regular guy. But, um, I don't buy that he was put in by the white working class, you know, the hillbilly elegy argument, um, as it might be called. I mean, he was put in by a bunch of angry people who don't think very clearly. Is that an ideology? I guess it could be. But I don't know what you would call it. Um, you know, it's not clearly thought out enough to be an ideology. Whatever. I've said this before, and I am repeating myself, but I'll say it again. I mean, I don't... I don't um, I don't see in and of itself that this is a mark of a, a fascist renaissance in the United States. I, the fact that he that Trump has gotten so little support for what he has done and has this massive movement of people against him, every, basically every movie he makes is opposed. Is it you know is is an example of it? It's, it's more that the whole 
empire is so unwieldy that um, it's crushing a lot of people, you know, under its wheels. I mean, the best thing that I've read in terms of the um, the disenfranchised, uh, you know, white working class, you know, the the former uh, factory, you know, industri- industrial workers who have been displaced over the past few years is probably, um, oh, what is the woman's name? Janesville. Amy, oh, let me pause while I remember her name. Amy Goldstein, who wrote to spent 10 years covering a story about um, the Jane, Janes, Janesville, Wisconsin. Janesville, Wisconsin had a big GM plant. It was the last of the, of the uh, GM plants in the United States. And it closed down in 2008, I believed. And this woman from the Washington Post spent 10 years in this long, you know, admirable journalistic project. The kind of thing you can't do unless someone's paying you to do it, I might add, um, in this era where we think that all this stuff should be free. No, not you. this is be very difficult to do just on your own time. It's a beautiful book. And... Um, Janesville is, um, interestingly enough, in Paul Ryan's congressional district. And Paul Ryan's father and grandfather worked at the Janesville plant. And when it closed down, Paul Ryan himself claimed, uh, as a congressman of the district, that he was going to do everything in his power to either get it open or get some of relief for the displaced workers and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, he, as we, you know, I, spoilers, he didn't do anything. And the book covers sort of what happens to the community when all these people, you know, who are these these are auto workers, you know, that they, they make you know, they made a lot of money. Very well paid um manufacturing workers. And how the whole economy of the town kind of collapsed around them. The I mean there's just a lot of sad little things. One is that um traditionally the auto workers as uh, you know, as I said, privileged, high-paid workers, you know. They kind of, um, all the, the charitable organizations in the town kind of ran on their, not just their contributions, but their volunteer work. And when all these people suddenly were out of work, and they weren't, you know, and time goes on, and they're not getting work, no more work is coming their way. Um, Things like the United Way and the Salvation Army and you know, the Red Cross, all of a sudden, they're having a really hard time. Meals on Wheels, they're all having a really hard time even keeping going because the bulk of the people that were volunteering to do it and that were giving money and having fundraisers for them no longer could afford to do it because they needed the they needed the money and the the whole all the the interviews she did with people who as they gradually the 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 horrible realization dawned on them that they they were in the position now where they needed these services themselves you know people that were very proud of having raised tons of money for the united way for you know year after year after year after year and now they realize they're the ones that need the money and there's no one to give it it's just a it's a really it's horrible it's a horrible story and um I mean, one of the high school teachers starts noticing that a lot of the students seem to be very stressed out and they're they're wearing the same clothes to school all the time. They're not, you know, they don't seem to be eating. 
and she starts putting aside things in her own office and just quietly taking the students aside and giving them clothes to wear and giving them canned foods to take home. Um, for a lot of these kids, all of a sudden, the, the kids working at Burger King are supporting the family. Um, the union is doing what it can, but... Um, there were, you know, when when the whole town is out of work, there's limit. There are limits to how much support they're going to continue. The, the union can't even afford to, you know, to give them. There's a nice little comedy bit where um, I forget the guy's name, but Barack Obama actually set up a, a, a committee, a working committee, that was supposed to. Um, it was supposed to be a White House working committee on um, uh, displaced auto workers and the. Uh, local heads of the union tried, you know, it took them a year to get anybody from this group to come and sort of do any kind of presentation to the auto workers in Janesville and to sort of like talk about the, what kind of government support they could hope to get. Um, and they kept it. They were told that they had to put in different kinds of plans for what they, you know, the, what their community group was going to do, blah, 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 the kind of thing you do. If you work for a nonprofit or a community group, you're very familiar with the kind of, you know, application you have to put in. And so they worked on this, worked on it, worked on it. And finally, they get the guy to come. He gives a speech, very stirring speech. Oh, he's behind them all the way. Um, they're not going to be forgotten. And what he does not tell them, but he knows, is that he's he's going to be off the committee in two days. He's going to take a job at Georgetown University at the School of Public Policy. And so nothing came of this at all. So, again... You know, it's Barack Obama didn't do anything to these folks either. You know, he made a speech. It, it sounded good. I'm sure he meant well, but nothing, you know, concrete came of it. And, um, of course, this being Wisconsin, Governor Scott Walker at some point, our dear friend, you know, in his anti-union campaign, does, you know, actually he cut funding for some of the programs that would um, that would help give support to people who were newly out of work. Um, there is a great scene where they have um, the the annual Labor Day parade and all these, uh, you know, displaced uh, auto workers are marching and still proud union members. And Paul Ryan tries to, tries to get in the parade and they harass him out of it because they, <laughs> they don't like him. They hate him so much. Um, by the way, he didn't he didn't win in that district. You know, for those who are looking for, you know, Trump connections. And Trump didn't win in their that district either. So, I mean, if there if there were, you know, if these are the angry white people that supposedly are keeping people like Paul Ryan and Trump in business, they didn't. They, they, they did not support him. And um, the saddest thing of all about this whole book to me, the thing that really stuck with me, is that um, the big solution, panaceic solution that we are putting, we as a society, not me, but the, you know, the general society is putting forward for people who want to um, improve their economic situation is education. I mean, it's been that way for a while, but it's really true now. And that everything else really has been cut off, but you can always get, um, you know, you can get two things. You can get uh, counseling for your stress. You can get psychological counseling, and you can get funding for uh, retraining. And so um, the best thing in this book, written in this book being Janesville by Amy Goldstein, is the way she follows um, the number of the people, the formerly the former auto workers, 
and whether they choose to avail themselves or not of this retraining. And, you know, a bunch of them do. They get, you know, that's one of the, the few things. The government isn't really giving the money to help with the rent or to help with food or anything else. But they are, you know, they would give a certain amount of funding for people who, who go to the local community college and go for, um, you know, you know, re- re- retraining and very you know, vocational retraining. And the awful thing about this, again, spoilers, is the people who choose not to do that, who just, once they got fired, they kind of went home, looked at the books, and they went out and they got the first job they could find, no matter what it was. Those people took a, a salary hit of maybe 40%, which is significant, obviously. They're make, it's, but the people who went back for training, all those people made even less. All the people who went to the trouble of getting certifications or actually AA degrees and put in the time and took the scholarships and really worked hard at doing all the things for us to do, they made they they're making even they're making less than they ended up making less than half of what they were making um when they were when they were making cars less than half and one of the things that's you know goes along with that is that part of all these people who formerly had you know you know pretty good incomes scrambling around for jobs is now they're competing with people who probably couldn't have gotten a job at the, they could never have gotten a job at GM. They're scrambling for jobs, you know, waiting tables and working at fast food and working at Walmart and, you know, working at, at probably worse places than that. They're working for all these like very, very low wage jobs. So the people, all kinds of people that might've been able to get the low wage jobs, even though they couldn't have a job at GM. Now they can't even get the low wage job because somebody from GM who had a decent job is now taken a crummy job away, and it's working that instead. So this puts even more strain on the social, you know, the the non-existent um, social safety net there. And as I said, it's just sad the the way the people. I mean, everybody's trying to be positive, you know, think positive. Um, they're all, you know, they're very active in all these community organizations. As I said, they're active in their churches. And when nobody has, you know, when the less you know, it's like the old song, we got to share what we got to have of yours because we done shared all of mine. You know, when everybody sorts of run out of everything, it doesn't, you can have really good intentions, but when there's not enough to go around, there's just not enough to go around. And it is, it's a sad book. It's a sad book and it made me angry. But as I said, the thing that I want to s- stick with you from, from what I'm saying about it is two things. One is education didn't help here. And I don't think education is going to help. The second thing is, these people, the angry, displaced industrial workers, the white industrial workers, they didn't vote for Ryan. They did not vote for Trump. This district went for Sanders. And I think would have gone for Sanders. And that's what I, that's what I see happening. Now, how many of these people went for, you know, these crazy Russian stories? I don't know. And neither does anybody else. But I don't think they did. In fact, it seems from statistically they did not. I recommend this book really strongly, by the way. I'll, I'll mention it again. Amy Goldstein's book, Janesville. Available in paperback. Available from the library. You should read it. It will make you angry. It's just, it's a... But at the same time, and I, I think it will 
I mean, it will make you angry at the general situation, but it's not something you didn't know. But it's inspiring to read how how much these people stick together and they don't turn into um, hateful fascist nuts, hateful racist fascist nuts. None of that happens. They do their best and they, you know, they they keep trying to do everything they right, do the right thing, do everything they're supposed to do and hope that it works out for the best, even though, you know, it isn't working out for them. It's a really good book. And we're getting to the half hour mark, roughly. So I will tell you that you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, part of the Pacifica Radio Network. My name is Henry Hendrickson, and my name is my name is Henry Hendrickson. Can I say it three times? My name is Henry Hendrickson, and the name of the show is A Mansion for the Rat. And because we are in Fundrive, I'm going to ask you, my name being Henry Hendrickson, to call five one six six two zero three six zero two five one six six two zero three six zero two, or even better, go to the website. Um, org, and become a friend of the station become a buddy become my pal become a BAI buddy and uh, we are in Fundrive we need funds you can provide it by agreeing to give a little bit of funds or a lot of funds every single month on behalf of the station generally on behalf of any show you like I hope it's my show please please do it for a mansion for the rap and then that's great because you uh, don't have to worry about, you know, sending money or donating money because it just goes out of it. Just, you know, you've agreed to the amount that you can afford each month and that amount is taken from your bank account. And then we get it into our bank account and that's great because then we don't have to worry about if we're going to pay the electric bill or the other things we have to do. So, you're going to do that, right? You're going to be my pal. You're going to be my friend. You're going to be my buddy. If you can't afford to do that right now, please give us something. Come on. Go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. And um, if you want, if this was what it takes to tempt you, we have many, many gifts for you to choose from. You give us a gift and we'll give you a present. Plenty to choose from. Go to WBAI.org and look at the premiums. I'm sure there'll be something that will appeal to you. But I hope that my show appeals to you. I hope that the uh, the programming here generally appeals to you. And I hope that you will donate simply on the basis of how useful it is to you. Okay. Now on to the second half of the show. It sort of comes out of the first half of the show, I guess. Um... As I said, it's really hard to know what the hardest thing to determine about a work of art, whether popular or unpopular, I guess, or high art or low art, whatever you want to call it, high art, low brow, middle brow, high brow, low brow, blah, 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 is what the audience thought about it. And and as I said, that's when I was reading all the stuff about the Russian Twitter account. So that's really kind of what was coming to mind. I don't know, really. I mean, you, we know what they did, and you can read the accounts. But what, even if you're looking at the people that responded, there are plenty of people who don't respond. And you don't know what they think. You don't know what they thought or didn't think or what they said or didn't say. You just know what's there. You have a better sense, of, it's true, from places like, you know, 
like Twitter that uh, encourage responses. Um, you know, where you're following and forwarding and everything else. It gives you an idea that this is something that affected people. But you don't, even that, you're just sort of assuming. There's plenty of stuff people didn't forward, um, didn't follow, and yet they might be reading and believing it. Or, you know, they might be reading and not believing it. Some of the people who followed and forwarded don't believe it, and we're doing it for other reasons. You just, you know, I just think it's a hard thing to really gauge this whole... Um, analysis of this kind of data I think is less reliable than it's being made out to be. But one of the things that sort of it kind of oh reignited an idea in my head. It's a, a book I read recently came out last year but I just finished reading it recently is um a book by Daniel Swift called The Bug House, The Poetry, Politics, and Madness of Ezra Pound. And it is about, uh, you know, mostly about, well, about his um, his reputation, about his reputation as a poet and as a political thinker. That uh, Ezra Pound, of course, is a great modernist poet, very influential, had you know, friends with T.S. Eliot and William Carlos Williams, Marianne Moore, and everybody, basically, early part of the 20th century, very influential. The version we have of The Wasteland is the version that he edited, basically. He kind of, you know, whipped it into shape. And, um... Well, I'll, I'll leave his literary reputation aside from the moment. Fortunately, I don't feel... I certainly don't feel up to talking about it now, and also I probably don't feel like up to talking about it generally, particularly after, you know, having heard, well, at least one person on this station who was really knowledgeable about it do, uh, you know, an extended series on it, of course, being Simon Locally, who did a great series, a great summer series on Ezra Pound, probably I think the summer before he, summer before he died, I believe he was, he was seated a series on the, the Cantos. Um... And I wish he was here so that I could talk to him about it and check my check my work with him. Believe me, not for the first time. I miss uh, the work of Simon Locally here on WBAI. But for the moment, um, for purposes of what I'm saying now, what is important for you to know, if you didn't know it already, is that not only was he a very influential thinker, poet, modernist writer, but he was a lifelong anti-Semite and fascist sympathizer. And during the during World War II, he was living in Italy and was invited to and enthusiastically agreed to do a series of broadcasts on um, Italian radio. And a lot of broadcasts, I might add. I think it was 700-plus broadcasts, which is a ton. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it's not just like, you know, a dozen or so. It, I mean, he really stuck with this for a while. I mean, you really have to be, you have to be a believer. You have to really be a, you have to have radio fever to do the many radio shows. I haven't done 700 shows. At least I don't think I have. Um, not not even combining this show with the with uh, more shows like Shredicus that I'm sure it's not 700 shows, not even close. You really want to want to do some radio, and you really have to believe that what you have to say is something that people should be hearing. And what he believed people should be hearing is pretty disgusting. You know, it was um, as I, it's not ambiguous at all. You know, not in the slightest. 
And when the war ended, he was arrested, uh, taken into custody, put on trial. And unlike some other people, and he was held by uh, the Allied authorities and um, freaked out and kind of broke down under the pressure. And it should be mentioned that um, some other people who had done what he had done, like uh, William Joyce being, I guess, the most famous, of the, well, at least that I can come up, that's leaping to mind right now. I know that he was hanged for treason, for example, for doing something similar. Lord Haw Haw was the name, of course, that he broadcast under during World War II. And as I said, you know, Joyce was, you know, Joyce. Pound, you know, Pound's stuff was, was, was straight up fascist. He was a enthusiastic supporter of Mussolini and of Hitler, who he said was sort of a Jean d'Arc of, of Germany. Um, and he was a really vicious anti-Semite. He thought that, you know, usury, you know, as, you know, was, was the, the downfall of the whole planet and that it was the usury is an invention of the Jews and the Jews were responsible for everything bad that had ever happened to people generally, to civilization, that they were a cancer of civilization. You know, it's standard, you know, fascist, you know, Nazi rhetoric. And, um... So his um, his uh, lawyer, Pound's lawyer, decided early on that, like, basically the thing to do with him was, I mean, the guy was a mere poet, after all, and the thing was to just, you know, go for an insanity defense. And that ended up working. It's a long, complicated story, but as I said, if you want to know more about it, um, you can read it in this book by Daniel Swift called The Bug House, The Poetry, Politics, and Madness of Ezra Pound. And hell, you can read it in any biography of Ezra Pound as far as that goes. Well-known, well-known facts, set of facts about the guy. And he remained in custody in St. Elizabeth's until 1958 when he was released. Uh, at which point he left the United States and went to live in Italy for the rest of his life, and he died in the early 70s, 72. So what, what, is the, what, what is my reason for bringing him up? Well, that it's interesting that, and it's sort of what the book is about, is that, of course, the only way you, you have this back and forth with him because Either he was important as a thinker or he was not important as a thinker. And if he's insane and didn't know what he was doing, then he's probably not important as a thinker, unless you just think that poetry is independent of whether you're sane or not, which basically was the argument they were making and continued to make during the time that he was in what he called the bug house. But on the other hand, it's not like he was, you know, he wasn't isolated. They don't seem to have put a lot of restrictions on um, on his visitations or his contact with the outside world. I mean, there were, you know, he had to be supervised up to a point. You had to make an appointment to see him, but it's not like he, it's not like he was in prison. And uh, tons of people did. It was really a, a post-war destination for American poets was to go see Ezra Pound in St. Elizabeth's. Plenty of people did. Elizabeth Bishop, Robert Lowell, um... You know, all kinds of folks. And Swift has uh, a whole um, chapter where he sort of analyzes the, uh, he feels that this became sort of a literary trope, was the visit to the bug house, and which I think he makes heavy weather out of, um, in the sense that people were making a big deal out of that they were going to the madhouse to 
distance themselves from the idea that they themselves did not belong in a, a madhouse. And I think it's just simpler that it is sort of an extreme thing to do. Um, it would be less extreme if you were visiting a family member, but to go visit someone who was regarded as a major literary figure and you had to go visit them in a madhouse, you know, you do. it's something that you, you'd felt that you need to explain and probably wanted to explain in detail. And I don't think it's really distancing yourself from that. It's just I mean, that I think they, they weren't sure what to feel about it, whether they should feel sorry for him or whether they should feel, you know, angry with him. And the question of what to feel about Ezra Pound, I think is the most one of the most interesting thing about, well, there's a lot of interesting things about Ezra Pound. For the moment, that's what I'm focusing on. How do we deal with somebody that we think is done something really wrong, like treasonously wrong, has really hurt people, continues to hurt people. And is mental illness an excuse for it or not? Because there was a feeling, there has been a feeling by some people that it wasn't, you know, that it was sort of a fake, he wasn't really crazy, and that they just sort of got him in on a fake insanity plea. There is, um, and I'll mention parenthetically, that... um, Although Allen Ginsberg claimed that I mean, Allen Ginsberg claimed, went to see him in Italy toward the toward the end of his life, um, when whenever when when was Ginsberg in Europe in the mid sixties I guess sixty six sixty seven when he was there, and he went to visit Pound and uh, who Pound seemed just like kind of exhausted and tired and apparently was very depressed he got very depressed in the later part of his life he just felt like his life had been kind of a a failure. Um, and Ginsburg claimed that Pound kind of recanted the anti-Semitism and he felt that he had been, it had been a stupid suburban prejudice and the big mistake of his life that he'd allowed himself to get caught up in it. Um, well, I mean, I hope that's true because I would like to think that, you know, a smart guy would eventually figure out that something like that was as stupid and wrong as it was. On the other hand, Ellen Ginsburg was a very generous guy and, you know, I sometimes I feel maybe... I'm not sure I trust his emotional generosity in this case. Um, I hope he was right. I hope he did back down from it. But most of the time, he didn't back down from it at all. And he had a number of extremely um, dangerous, awful people who became his acolytes, who he encouraged in, strongly to go forward in their hateful ways. A guy named John Casper, who was member of the Klan, and later founded uh, one of the White Citizens Council, and a guy, a sinister guy named Eustace Mullins, who only died relatively recently, within the last ten years, and was uh, it's a had a minor but significant influence on um, sort of a lot of the radical right of the past forty years, and especially the Constitutionalist movement, the militia movement. Um, the Holocaust revisionist movement, and he was very active. You know, um, I knew, I knew people that had met and talked to him and admired him, and um, and read his books. They're very much in print, and he was one of. Uh, he wrote a biography of Ezra Pound with his more or less his cooperation called "This Difficult Man Ezra Pound." It came out in the early '60s, and considered him his. You know, he considered himself to be Ezra Pound's intellectual heir. And Pound didn't seem unhappy with this idea, at least for most of his life he didn't. And Mullins went on to do some really severe damage. As you know, as I said, if you if you know who he who he is and his, his role in the in the modern conspiracist movement, which is enormous, 
certainly the people who believe that Hillary Clinton was, you know, running sex rings out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., or I, a lot of them, I can assure you, are big followers of Eustace Mullins, whose material is much easier to find on the Internet today than it ever was when you had to get it in zine form in the 80s and 90s. So, uh, you know, Pound's bad, you know, influence continues. So what am I trying to get at here? I mean, it's the, the question that all his Ezra Pound's friends had his old friends from way back when was. Um, we know Ezra's like, you know, has these lot of like weird kind of unpleasant ideas. Some of them I might add though, like the anti-Semitism is not something that T.S. Eliot had for most of his life. If you have not read Anthony Julius's book on this subject, you should. Um, I forget what it's called, but there's just one on T.S. Eliot and anti-Semitism. He also read, and that I have read, and that's a really disturbing book. He also wrote a very long book on anti-Semitism in the UK, which I have not read. But um, anyhow, a lot of a lot of documentation for this for those who want to find it. Um, but anyhow, to go back to people who weren't anti-Semites, like William Carlos Williams, who had like a rather combative relation relationship with Pound, they still felt that what he his work was valuable enough that maybe you could just sort of like. Hold your nose and roll your eyes at the things that he did. And there was the, but the, in order to do this, what they ended up sort of doing was just deciding that politics didn't matter for a poet. And I think a lot of people, you know, that did not read the more, you know, the more virulently anti Semitic things that he had written, there was a big push to put out his work after the war. Um, James. Laughlin, uh, you know, sort of arranged for him to win a Bollingen Prize by, you know, putting it's not because he meant that he arranged it, you know, single-handedly, but he pushed to put Pound's name forward for Bollingen Prize in 1949, which he ended up winning. And if this man was like, and basically the way he got it is because I thought, well, he's, you know, he's a talented person who's kind of crazy. He's sort of like a, a crazy genius, a crazy artistic genius. And the idea that he was a crazy artistic genius who had some remarkably hateful, unpleasant ideas had to be sort of soft-pedaled because then what are you going to do? And I feel this is a problem we're not, this isn't a problem that's easily solved at all. I feel like a lot of the things I've talked about in the last few, few months have also dealt with this question to take, um, well, just take one example. I mean, you know, the whole situation with Roseanne Barr, I think, is one of these situations. I think this woman is nuts. I think this woman is crazy, is really suffering from mental illness. I think, you know, as as I said, I apparently I'm the only person in the country who remembers when she was under the care of a quack psychiatrist who did hypnotherapy on her that convinced her that her own parents had sexually abused her as an infant, as an infant, and up to the point when she was in high school, and that she publicly accused her parents of this and didn't back down from it for years. That's crazy. I'm sorry, it's crazier than the stuff she said about uh, recently that like got her into such hot water. It's nuts. And yet I believe that she, you know, uh, for every crazy thing that comes out of her mouth, she has some real insights. But what are we to do with this? And apparently what we do at the moment is... If you cross certain lines, and racism is a line, maybe the line for us right now, then everything goes into the toilet. And 
I, you know, I'm really, you know, it's, it certainly has happened with Bill Cosby with his, you know, horrific, you know, rape and sexual abuse of, you know, we don't even know how many women he has raped. He raped and sexually abused. And so that all the work he did that didn't involve that is, you know, out the window. We, we it's it's going to be just, it's it's just been so tainted that no one is allowed to have contact with it. And... I'm torn with this thing with Pound because I think Pound was an a-hole. I really do. I don't think he was, you know, it wasn't faking any of this. It wasn't anything crazy about the anti-Semitism. He was, he was an anti-Semite. He was a fascist. It's not is. I mean, unless you just think being a fascist is crazy, which I guess the argument could be made that that would be the case. And I think for many people at the time that was the argument they were making, as people were trying to sort of wrap their heads around what had just what had just happened, basically. Um. You know, the, the, the 50s, the fo- late 40s and the 50s is this period where, where the world is trying to wrap their mind around the Holocaust and what it was. And it wasn't actually as well known as it is today, as you may or may not be aware, until sort of the publication of the Diary of Anne Frank and even more the stage play that came out of it. It was not as... It wasn't something just everybody knew that you would say six million Jews and everybody knew what that meant. Back then, it really it wasn't the case. If you've read the transcripts of the Nuremberg trials, which some surely you must have read some stuff in the Nuremberg trials, that's the that's like a couple of days of the of the proceedings. The bulk of the Nuremberg trials were had to do with um, violation of treaties. I mean, today we know when you think World War II and Nazi atrocities, nobody thinks of anything but the death camps. But that wasn't really true back then. And if it were, Pound would definitely, I think, he would have been executed. Frankly. Don't you? But it was something that people were working out. And I find the whole thing troubling. Because I, I believe, as I have said, that mental illness is a real illness. Just like any physical illness. And I haven't even mentioned that one of the things about Pound also is the reason he was released from St. Elizabeth is not because anybody thought he was sane. They didn't. They thought he was as crazy as he'd ever been. It's just that the period at, by 1958, the they were there was a shift of direction in American psychiatric treatment, which is that we no longer had the idea of um, the insane asylum as being you know, well the asylum idea of the insane asylum that it would be uh, sort of a peaceful bucolic place where you wouldn't really have to deal with things you'd be taken care of you'd be shielded from the outside world. And maybe if you were in um, a protected environment, that that your mind would heal itself. And this idea was sort of like ditched at that time, and the idea of like uh, reintegrating troubled people into the community, you know, uh, the famous community, was put forward. And the idea that, we now had uh, all kinds of wonderful psychiatric drugs that were going to help people like Ezra Pound function in society because it was just a you know <sighs> you know a you know a chemical a chemical disorder and if that could be taken care of why why separate them from you know separate from their loved ones why separate them from society they could be reintegrated into society generally with the help of chemistry. And then there's sort of a lot of back and forth on that over the years. There's talking, this is sort of where it's talking therapy is still very much the rage. Um, but the whole idea of the asylum is, is, is done. And that's, that's why they let him out, as I said, not because they thought he was better. 
I mean, how how do we how do we deal with someone like this? I mean, I didn't I don't think that Ezra Pound was ever was going to go out and you know, be a serial killer, but his ideas did a lot of damage. That I can say pretty flatly. They continued to do a lot of damage. He had he had acolytes. He had acolytes, not just people you know people who admired his poetry, but people who admired his you know his fascism, who admired his his hateful anti-Semitism. You know, they don't usually get uh, MacArthur grants to do the, you know, their hateful anti-Semitism, but they are acolytes nonetheless. I don't know. I mean, it all comes down to how do we deal with... um, There is such a thing as dangerous ideas. I mean, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of the government in particular um, putting forward the idea of a thought crime. I'm really uncomfortable with it. And yet I'm aware that there are, you know... As there are, there are dangerous visions, as Harlan Ellison showed to us, as there are dangerous ideas. Ideas have power. The only way you could think that somebody like Pound was harmless is if you think ideas are harmless, if you think poetry is harmless, if you think um, you know intellectual activity is harmless. And we tend, in general, as a feeling in the United States to be anti-intellectual, to think exactly that. But it isn't true. It is dangerous. And I really have no, I'm just putting this forward to you as a difficult intellectual, political, social question. I don't know what should have been done with Ezra Pound. I don't know what should be done with um, Roseanne Barr. I don't know what should be done with Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby's a little different. It's not a hate, it's not a, well, yeah, let's leave Bill Cosby out of it since that's not really, that's not a thought crime thing. That's really a very much a physical crime. But Roseanne Barr, no, Roseanne Barr, it's like it's a thought crime. She just says the first thing comes into her head, no matter how, no matter how what it is. Who knows, you know, what's going on with her? Or something like Ezra Pound, who I think is, um, you know, has had a, had a quite developed, um, one of the few people really had, you know, we talk about, you know, racist ideologies and stuff. And most times you're just dealing with people who are just brainless buttholes. In this case, he had a very developed ideology on this. Very developed. A very developed philosophical position. And I don't know where this leaves us. I don't know where it leaves me. As I said, I don't know I don't know what I think the proper course of action is here. What I do know is that I'm at the end of my time here and um, I'll be back next week I don't know if I'll be talking about this next week, but I'm certainly not done talking or thinking about it. I don't, you know, it's 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 a pebble in my shoe here. I'm bothers me, bothers me. I don't know what to think about it. Um, who am I? I'm Anne Marie Henderson. The show is a man from the rat. I'll be back next week, and but don't forget, we're in fun drive mode. You should pay some money to keep the station on the air. While you're thinking about these uh, these dumb philosophical conundrums that I'm presenting to you, you could call 516-620-3602 or go to WBAI.org and make a donation. Or even better, become a buddy of the station, become a friend, become a pal, support us, send us some money. You can send us some money every month. Become a friend of the mansion, of mansion for the Rad. And then we can keep coming back to you as we want to do. So, that's it. That's it for me. Good night. Stay tuned for the Haitian All-Stars and their fabulous music, and I'll, uh, I'll be back next week. Good night. Good night.